Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz vocalist Ashley Pizzotti. New York vocalist and composer Ashley Pizzotti discovered her love for music when her Dominican father would sing her classic Spanish songs to sleep. She began taking voice lessons at only four years old, and in 2018 she completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Miami's Frost School of Music with a full tuition scholarship. At the young age of 26 years old, Ashley has performed with renowned artists such as Wynton Marcellus and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, Arturo Sandoval, Joey Alexander, Dave Holland, John Cicada, and country star Keith Urban. In the spring of 2019, Ashley participated in the Betty Carter Jazz Ahead program, where she was mentored by D.D. Bridgewater, Jason Moran, Casey Benjamin, Marcus Printup, and Peter Martin, and performed her original compositions at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. Her 2019 critically acclaimed debut album, We've Only Just Begun, features an array of original compositions inspired by the great American songbook. Ashley also showcases her superb ability to tell a story through some of the great jazz standards featured on the album. The album features a world-class band including Emmett Cohen on piano, Alex Weitz on tenor saxophone, Bob Bruya on bass, and Kyle Poole on drums. The release was accompanied by a national tour, including performances at Birdland Jazz Club, The Velvet Note, The Nash, The Jazz Showcase, and Dizzy's Club at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Ashley is featured on Wynton Marcellus's 
2020 album release on Blue Engine Records, the ever-funky Lowdown, along with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. The album is a sweeping Marcellus suite that captures the artist's insight on culture and society. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Ashley Pizzotti. Hello, Ashley. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm great, and it's great to uh, have an opportunity to talk with you. I'm very much in awe, uh, even being in your presence electronically, knowing uh, you know what you're doing and, and, and uh, kind of the meteoric rise that you've had. I mean, from your bio, you have had one whirlwind of a career thus far. I mean, uh, even with uh, disruptions from COVID, you've gone from uh, graduating from the University of Miami uh, to performing and recording with the Lincoln Center Orchestra and recording your own album. Uh, out of these last few years, then, I have to ask you is what have been some of your most memorable moments? And have you caught your breath yet? Um, well, I think everyone caught their breath during the pandemic because, you know, there was so much free time, I guess. But um, my most memorable moments, I mean, so I, I don't believe in luck. I believe in God. But when I first moved to New York, my first gig was working with Jazz at Lincoln Center. And I feel like every time I've gotten to work with them has always been so fun and exciting for me. Because um, they're such a high caliber, <laughs> I mean, the highest caliber, really. Um, so getting to, you know, work with them every time is always, you know, they're, they're so nice, too. They, it feels like a family every time I get to work with them. It doesn't feel like work. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, I mean, the Lincoln Center Orchestra is, is like, the you know, one of the premier large jazz ensembles in the United States. I mean, there's a lot of great bands, don't get me wrong. And I'm, I'm not uh, knocking anybody's uh, uh, professional big band, but, you know, Lincoln Center. And the fact that it's led by Wynton Marcellus, who is a person who I have had such high regard for the last, oh my goodness, I bet it's been since the 1980s. So however long ago that's been, I remember listening to his very first uh, re commercial recording and uh, uh, jazz recording and then his uh, classical recordings and winning one Grammys in both categories. And I've uh, seen him live uh, a number of times and I just have the utmost respect for the man. And for you to be able to work with him in the Lincoln Center uh, Orchestra must just be an absolute gas. Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah, well, that's uh, you know super, and I and I hope it it just continues to go nowhere but upward for you because I think uh, I really love what you do, and uh, I was actually I was listening to uh, your album right before we came on, and uh, love your voice, love your style. We're going to talk more about that as we go along, but uh, uh, I really hope hope. Uh, things will continue to go on an upward trajectory for you. You know, jazz comes in a lot of different flavors. 
and, and styles. I used to tell that my students in my jazz history class that listening to jazz is sort of like going to the, the gelato store. And you don't want to just focus on one flavor. You want to try them all. Um, and I'm going to ask you, you know, you're closer to having graduated from college than I am. And you went to a very prestigious music school at the Frost School of Music. So from your perspective, what is the common thread that runs through all jazz music? And what is it that makes, what's the je ne sais quoi? What is it that makes jazz distinct from other styles of music? Well, for me personally, I would say the improvisation factor. Because okay. um, I'm, I'm coming from, because jazz came later for me. I, I used to sing um, more, more pop and R&B. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the mindset of that is, you know, you sing it, learn the song this way, you sing it that way. There's not really much discussion about, um, you know, improvising or anything like that. And so when I first discovered jazz, the improvisation factors were really like drew me to it because it's so freeing, you know, you can sing a song, you know, every night um, that you're every night of the week and it'll be different every time, you know, it's not going to be like, okay, I'm going to sing it this way and it's meant to be this way. And, you know, it's, it's always going to be different depending on, you know, so many factors, like just being in the moment and also, you know, what, what the fellow musicians on stage are playing, they might play something that will influence you to sing something a different way or phrase something a different way. And that's what I really love about it. Um, and, you know, it's, you're communicating with the musicians. It's not just here's the singer and then the musicians. It's, no, it's, we're all a group, it's a whole. And I, I really love that. Well, I think that, uh, you know, real musicians who, uh, uh, you know, recognize that the voice is just as much an instrument as a trumpet. And, uh, and it's uh, an, an integral part of the band. It isn't just a, uh, you know, showcase out front only, and the band is separate. I know not all of my associates who are musicians think that way, but uh, I certainly do. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, part of that is, is not only just my attitude, but also my wife is a vocalist. So, I, you know, and we, we work together. Uh, in fact, we were having a little rehearsal right before we, we came on because we're playing tomorrow for a, uh, just a little event here in our neighborhood. But uh, nice. uh, oh, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. We just play off the back deck of our condo. And uh, that's our, really fun, though. Yeah. And our back deck looks out over kind of this nature area and a, and a path. And I just invite, you know, my neighbors from the condo association and their fans and families. And they just set up their lawn chairs and bring their picnics. And we just do it for fun. And but uh, well, that's what's important, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but I respect, uh, you know, what she does as a, a vocalist, as well as she's also a pianist and, and uh, you know, a real total musician. And so I think that, uh, that uh, you know, vocal, the vocalist aspect. The other thing is I, I had a great interview just a couple of weeks ago with the co-artistic directors of a vocal band called Roomful of Teeth. I don't know if you know this group or not, no, but you, you, you ought to check them out. They're really interesting. Uh, they're not uh, they, uh, specifically a jazz uh, vocal 
band, so to speak, but a, uh, uh, they do some incredible sounds with the voice. I wow. mean, and they, they do. Uh, and so, you know, and one of the things that, that I think that, and we got into a discussion about was, you know, when you think about some of the real early jazz singers like Billie Holiday, um, you know, they always say that, you know, Billie Holiday listened to a lot of Louis Armstrong and a lot of her phrasing came from Louis Armstrong. And, um, and I think about Ella Fitzgerald, you know, when she would scat sing and how she, uh, 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 the song that always comes to my mind when I hear Ella is where her version of Mac the Knife from the Live in Berlin album, uh, where she's imitating Louis Armstrong's trumpet, you know. So, yeah. I mean, the voice trying to have that instrumental quality. Yeah, and Ella but, also listened to a lot of Dizzy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so I think, you know, what you're talking about, I, I, I totally... Uh, agree and, and have been in that, that situation where I think a lot of music is very pre-scripted. I mean, like, I, I mean, I hit from the classical side too. I play classical trumpet as well as jazz. When I'm wearing my classical hat, by golly, we want to play it exactly the same way every time, the best way that, you know, the composer we're playing intended and so on. And jazz is, is you have that freedom uh, that even if someone does something different or uh, uh, makes a mistake, you work out on stage how to come out of it and all make it work and fit, you know. And I used to tell my students that jazz isn't just a performing art. It is a performance art. The art is being created as you're witnessing it. So I, I think your comments are very, very much uh, in line with my thinking so good for you <laughs> like that really matters you know but no i think i think you're spot on um but uh you know one of the things that i remember is uh uh clark terry the great uh trumpet flugelhorn player you know he once said uh, to me and of course there are a few other audience members in the clinic as well, but I always feel like he was just talking to me. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it used to say that with jazz, first you imitate, then you assimilate, then you innovate. You've probably heard that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So who were your models as a jazz vocalist? Oh man, I have so many. Um, I think as most vocalists, when they first discovered jazz, vocal I, one of my first influences were like Ella Fitzgerald of course Sarah Vaughn you know the group the, the big three Billie Holiday um Anita O'Day um I think in regards to my like when I was working on learning how to improvise um John Hendricks was definitely a big one oh, yeah. um Mel Torme even um, but then I, I really turned more towards instrumentalists because um, then I began transcribing a bunch of instrumental solos because I was thinking, hmm, what is what what is scatting? And really, when you're scatting, you're trying to you know emulate a horn player. And so I felt like the best way to do that was to just start transcribing horn solos um, so that I'd have that vocabulary. And so one of my biggest influences, I would say, is Dexter Gordon. Oh. Um, I really love Cannonball Adderley. Um, well, I think one of the first 
porn players I transcribed was Bird um, and Dizzy, of course. Um, I mean, the list goes on. I think um, for newer singers, not newer, but people I'm listening to now, I'm really influenced by um, Dinah Washington. Oh, yeah. Nancy Wilson. Um, and I'm really loving Carmen McRae as well. I'm really digging into her now. Yeah. So it's always going to be, the list is always going to just keep getting bigger. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, one of the things is like the byline for my podcast is that the universe of music is vast and, you know, you're, you're never going to know it all. So you've always got something new to learn. And oh, there's yeah. always some new performer to learn about and then you get off on and you get into and uh and i think that's that's just you know marvelous uh and i hope you know that through my podcast people are going to discover you and and listen to you and go wow that's just awesome sound and and uh and you'll influence someone else who comes along but john Hendricks, i want to go back to for just a second because he's another person who I admire so much. I've never, I've never, I have never met him, but I have loved his work. And I have, uh, I used to do a class at the university called Jazz in Literature. Mm -hmm. And I co-taught it with, it was an interdisciplinary course I co-taught with an English professor. And so we would focus on novels and short stories and poems that were about jazz or jazz musicians or the jazz subculture. But I always, at the end of the semester, I did a segment I called, instead of jazz and literature, it was literature in jazz. Mm -hmm. And I would focus on the lyrics of vocalese solos. Mm -hmm. So a lot of John Hendricks, a lot of uh, King Pleasure, yeah. Because the lyrics in those vocalese solos are about the person whose solo they've take, created the vocalese from, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and so it's, a, in a sense, it's, it's another, you know, kind of poetic uh, expression that, that looks at, uh, uh, like, okay, the tune that's playing in my head right now is uh, Freddie Freeloader that John Hendricks did, right? Mm -hmm. And then he also recorded with with Bobby McFerrin and I can't remember who else was on that album. Mel Torme. Mel Torme, yeah, anyway, right. But he had all the voices assigned that would sound like a tenor or like a trumpet or like, you know, and and really captured that so well. And then of course, Hendricks, the lyrics that he wrote for the vocalese would be about those particular players. And I just thought that was, I mean, that, that send, sent me into space. I just really dug that a lot. And, uh, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, that's an important part of our uh, uh, artistic expression as well. There's another singer I, who I dig a whole lot who does that, Kurt Elling. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, who, uh, and, and he's from not too far. He's from Chicago. And I, I remember, I, I don't know, I've seen him live, I guess, four or five times. And I remember uh, one time, he was appearing at a club in Milwaukee and I went to see him and he was kind enough to talk to me during the break. And I told him, I said, yeah, I teach this class at the university and I talk all about you and about vocalese and, and about, you know, what you do with beat poets and stuff like that. And thought that was amusing, but uh, well, okay. So here you are, 
you have, you know, you're, like I said, more recent than I am as for getting out of college. You're in New York. You've really you're, had this great uh, experience. So what tips might you have for other young aspiring jazz musicians who might listen, be listening? Because I do have a some younger people in my demographic of audience, my audience. Well, um, the biggest thing for me would be that no one's going to hand you anything. You have to work for it yourself and you have to have the drive and the vision to go for what you want. Um, and you have to be consistent as well. You can't just send, okay, let me send a bunch of booking emails this one day and then never do it again. No, mm -hmm. then make a list and, you know, of all the venues you emailed and follow up. You know, you have to be persistent and consistent and, and you have to go for it yourself. Um, no one's going to hand you anything. <clears throat> um, that's what I would say. Okay. So being <laughs> consistently persistent. Yes. <laughs> or maybe, maybe be a, a, another way to put it is be a nice pain in the neck. Oh, yeah. So people will eventually want to deal with you to get rid of you or at least but deal with you. But also making sure that you're, you know, practicing and, and that everything's together so that when you do get that opportunity, because you really only have one shot. If you get the chance to play like, I don't know, Dizzy's and they're like, okay, you know, do this gig and then you can't back up what you've said by email and then this, you know, the music isn't there or, or you, you can't fill the room or whatever. You only get that one shot. Then the next time you're like, hey, I'd like to get a gig. They probably won't book you again. Right. So making sure that, that the music is together first and, um, and then also being consistent and, and being persistent and being your biggest um, supporter because no one else is going to push you and give you opportunities. You have to seek those out yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like uh, that the, the music school that you went to and being surrounded by so many others who, that were kind of striving for the same sort of thing? excellence in music whether it was performance or education or whatnot do you think that that was a real uh, a reality for you i mean something that you kind of felt that rubbed off on you that helped kind of catapult you i mean as well as your own uh, individual initiative but just also being surrounded by others oh definitely um and the amount of talent that came out of that school when i was there was definitely very high um, so always, you know, being surrounded by people that inspired you, um, it, I don't know, I think that's a big thing, because if you're, and that's what I love about New York, too, because, mm -hmm. that, you know, you go out to any club, and, and you'll, you'll be like, wow, oh, I need to go home and practice, <laughs> and that sort of, you know, pushes you to, you know, strive to be better, um, but then you also see what, you know, these musicians are doing, and then you're like, wow, okay, what am I going to do for myself? too mm -hmm. so then it also you know gives you the drive to like want to you know um you know keep going for it and keep pushing i think it definitely is a huge huge part of it yeah well i've known a few people that have come out of out of uh university of miami frost school of music a trumpet player named augie haas and um a colleague of mine that uh, i taught with up here in wisconsin tim buckholz he did his doctorate in vocal jazz at, uh, at Miami, I remember, but that was probably before you were there. But uh, I know Tim, 
especially I worked with him a lot uh, in an academic environment. The guy definitely had his act together. He's a great singer. He knows how to get just a, the best sound out of his vocal jazz ensembles. I mean, you know, and uh, so I, I think, uh, and I, you know, and I tell, I've told that to my own students, uh, the uh, institution I've taught at for a number of years, very small campus. And I, I, I would tell them, I said, well, you know, because I went to grad school at the University of North Texas. And I said, we had as many music majors as we have total students here, you know, and just being in that environment. So my, my students that want to go on into music, I say, you've got to get yourself in an environment where you're around a lot of musicians, because you are going to learn from other people and get motivated by other people. And even though it's not overtly so, it is a competitive environment. You know, like you said, you go to a club and you hear somebody and you think, well, I got to practice. I got to come up with what am I going to do? So, yeah. Well, speaking of excellence, let's talk about your album that you released in 2019. Uh, we've only just begun. Now, of the 13 songs on the album, Six are original compositions and seven are standards, if I did the math right. I think so. <laughs> okay, well, let's just, you know, we can, it's not a big deal, but I, I think I count it. But I want to first start with how much I enjoy your approach to the standards on the, on the, on the recording. Oh, uh, and because I love it when I can hear a song that I know but I hear it done in a new and fresh way, which of course is a testament to the greatness of those songs because they're still, even though they're 50, 60, sometimes 70, 80 years old, we're still doing them, right? And they're still making them sound like they're written yesterday. So my question for you is when you prepare a standard, what do you focus on to rearrange or bring the song across in a manner that will sound fresh and original? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is uh, focusing on the lyrics. Mm -hmm. because, and I feel like with life experience, it sort of changes the way I approach a song. Like I, I think about all the songs in my record now and I, I think I would sing them completely differently um, just based on you know, life experience, because I, I guess I recorded that in 2018, right mm -hmm. after I graduated from university, um, before I moved to New York. Um, and um, I just think that, you know, living life, you know, changes the way that I view a standard. I might see a standard and think like, oh, wow, this, this means this to me now, but then something else might happen in my life where I'm like, oh, wait, these lyrics, there's something more here. And then I approach it in a different way. Um, I feel like that's the, the biggest thing for me um, because, you know, I, I feel like it influences everything. If you're focusing, I like to think of it as more of like, okay, this is the story. And there's an exercise I like to do with my students too, where you just take the lyrics and you just read them. Like if it was like a monologue or like a poem, don't read it, don't think it's a melody or the rhythm or anything, throw that out the window. These are just words and what is the story? And you know, like speak it out. And I feel like that in itself can change, you know, the way I'll phrase something um, when I think of it in that way. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, what that brings me to think about, and pardon, pardon my uh, music appreciation professor hat for just a moment, because <laughs> I used to teach that. But, you know, I used to tell my students when we get taught, we get start talking about opera in uh, the 16th and 17th century, how, you know, uh, the Italian composer Claudio Monteverdi used to say that music is the mistress to the text. And it sounds to me like you might have that a similar kind of attitude of, of like, let's look at those lyrics and then let's figure out what we can do musically, either with alterations to melody or harmony or rhythm or tempo or even meter to enhance that meaning and to squeeze more of the juice out of what uh, what those words are. Yeah, because they aren't just because I actually taught a master class when I was in Sweden a couple months ago. And I guess in that instance, it was different because the students like English was their second language. But they were like one, so one of the students was like, oh, th these words like they don't mean anything to me. They're just like a way to like get the music out. And we had a discussion about it. And, and for me, it's like they aren't just words. There's a story like we're not in, that's the thing that separates us from instrumentalists is like we, you know, we can connect with audiences through the stories that we tell. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a handful of people out there who've gone through a breakup and like listen to like the saddest song on repeat because of the lyrics, <laughs> you know, um, I'm certainly one of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I, I think for me, the, the lyrics uh, take priority because um, right. you know, I'm trying to connect with with the audience like through telling that story and um, i think that's that's been more of my focus in the last few years for sure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well I, you know and it's interesting to kind of turn things around um I, I had an experience on wednesday one of the bands that i direct uh is a, a band for older adults it's through the new horizons international music association and we've got a band here in Waukesha, where I live, most of everyone in the band is in their 70s and 80s. But we were playing a uh, piece by Edvard Grieg from his lyrics we called The March of the Trolls. Now, it's just, you know, it's instrumental, right? And I said, but I'm trying to get to them. I said, we've got to play more than just the notes. I said, when you play, you know, from letter here to letter here, we have to imagine this and then when we get to this section it's uh you know we have we have to kind of create that picture we're still trying to create pictures with instrumental music but we still have to have that concept in in our head of uh, uh if not a lyric at least a, 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 a an image or a scenario or something but that that sounds great and I, you know and i picked that up i you know the song of yours that i probably have listened to more than any of them and it's probably because it's the first one on the album and i was so taken with it i just repeat 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 is it only takes a moment and i love i i love the way that you do that tune with, you know, singing the head with nothing but just, you know, the snare drum accompanying you, you know, oh, yeah. and then the rest of the band doesn't come in till, till the solos, you know, start. But there's a certain, I, I found for me as a listener, when I listened to that, I thought, okay, it only takes a moment. It only takes a moment to do what? Well, to either fall in love or to really screw up a relationship. 
and oh I thought, God. and well, yeah, I mean, and, and I thought, okay, she's doing this in a very spare sort of way. It's just her voice and just this snare drum. And it really kind of kept me on the edge. And I mean that in a good way about what is it? Is it the about to fall in love? just a moment or it is it did we just screw up our relationship in just a moment I was but then when the band came in I was relieved because I felt like it was the you know we fell in love like, oh, yeah exactly <laughs> the way you constructed that see really elicited that feeling and I and it then became kind of my uh 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 favorite tune the other one, of course, I love is uh, solo too. You could sing in Spanish to me all day long, Aww, because <laughs> I just love, I just love the Spanish language. And well, I love the Spanish language anyway. But when a song in Spanish will just make my heart thump, even if I don't even know what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually my mom's favorite song on that record. Oh, good. Well, your so. you, your mom and I'll probably get along then. <laughs> but um, I uh, no, I just was impressed with the way that you you took standards and you uh, and you you found ways to get more juice out of them. And then you know when we get to your originals, you know, let's talk about your originals that are on the on the album. Uh, again, do you kind of start with? A, a melodic idea is that the first thing that comes to mind or is it rhythm or chord um, changes or lyrics thing that comes to mind is definitely the title oh really yeah um because for me i always think back about like when i was first starting out in jazz and i remember when i was in high school um we had some assignments where we had to pick a jazz standard and we had to learn it and then give us like these thick real books and I didn't know anything about jazz. I was just looking through the title names and I felt like I could get a sense of what the song was about based on the title. Uh, and then if the title interested me, then I was like, oh, I wonder what that song is. And then I would flip and then I would listen. And if I liked it, then I would learn the song. And so I guess for me, I, I think about the title because it sort of, um, it already informs like what the song is going to be about in my own head. I guess. So then once I have the idea of like, okay, it's going to be this, then I can already be like, okay, it's going to, it's about this. Like, I already know what it's about. Then I just have to write it. I don't know. That's and then interesting. Um, the lyrics and the melody sort of come together at the same time. And some, sometimes it'll happen. Most of my writing I, I have done in like random, like in the car Mm -hmm. I used to drive, I don't drive anymore in New York, but when I was living in Miami, I would drive from Miami to Fort Lauderdale quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like an hour long drive when there's no traffic. So I would, you know, not have any music on and just sit in my own thoughts. And sometimes I'd get like these ideas and I'd be like, oh crap, that'd be, I remember actually I started writing solo through in the car. Um, I remember that specifically and I, I was like oh shit let me grab my phone and then I would sing because obviously I can't write anything down I'm driving right. so I would like record on my voice memo like okay when I'm when I'm home I'm gonna get back to that and then see you know what it is sure. but I'll, I would record every all of my ideas like oh, okay this is gonna be the verse and I would record where I imagined the hits to be and I record it all on my phone so I would remember and then mm -hmm. I would go into like Sibelius or something 
right, right, right. Well, I, you know, I, I, you're, you're not alone. I think most every songwriter I've talked to does the same thing. They get the idea while they're driving in the car or as they record it on their voice memo. Mm -hmm. uh, I always get my ideas when I'm in the shower. Oh, that's I, another one too. Oh, is it? Well, shower. okay. We got or that airplane. in common. Yeah. Airplane. You know, it's typically places where there's no distractions. I'm not on my phone. I'm yeah. not scrolling Facebook. I'm not talking to anyone. I'm, I'm just alone in my yeah. own thoughts. And then yeah. the idea will come. Isn't that amazing how that works? But one thing I will tell you that you are different from most every other songwriter I have interviewed in almost two years. You're the first one who to has told me that you start with the title of the song. Yeah. You know, which I think is kind <laughs> of cool, cool in a way when, now that I'm thinking about it. It's almost like you're, you, you're choosing to write a theme just like we used to do in English class, right? So you've got your title. And then from there, you've got your, your topic sentence, which is, you know, maybe your A, and then you're going to go to a bridge and then, and then back to that theme. And then, and it all comes together. That's, that's, uh, that's really something, you know, the other thing, I'm just curious to hear what your opinion is. Do you feel that words themselves uh, have a natural melody to them? Sometimes I feel like the way the melody would be phrased, sometimes certain words don't work with it. Okay. Um, just the way it feels in my mouth, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I'll sing a melody and I'm like, oh, I'm hearing it has to have like an eh vowel, like based on like whatever the word is. I don't know, but it has to have this sort of sound. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, it does because I think that, you know, um, I'm, I'm going back to a, a book uh, I read several years ago on how to read poetry. And the author insisted that the, you cannot read poetry silently. Poetry must be spoken because you have to feel the words in your mouth. You have to be able to taste the language. And, uh, and uh, so, no, it doesn't sound weird to me at all. But I, I am curious to know, as, as a bilingual person, do you uh, think or write differently when you're writing in Spanish versus in oh, yeah. English? Do you really? Yeah, because um, Spanish, it, I'm, I'm, I, I understand Spanish completely, and I speak it when I need to, but I definitely don't have the best grammar, so I'll write something. And then I'll call my dad and I'll be like, does this make sense in Spanish? <laughs> like, is this grammatically correct? And they'd be like, no, you should change this word here or whatever. And yeah. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I had that's a similar, I had a, for me. I had a similar exp experience when I was in grad school. I had a roommate uh, who was, uh, uh, he was a Mexican American, named Jesus. And, uh, and so we used to kind of exchange, I, my knowledge of Spanish is very little, uh, but I, I would kind of, we would kind of work things out and, and, uh, but uh, I, there is a different, certainly a different feel in the way the Spanish words are pronounced, but I hadn't thought about the grammatically correct part of it, because I imagine that when I speak Spanish, 
the little bit that I do, it probably sounds like, yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, a Blanco trying to speak Spanish and he's not doing a great job. Because <laughs> I talked to, I, you know, I, I try to, you know, anyway, but that's, that's interesting to know that, uh, that, uh, you know, you're thinking about that way. So, you know, you don't necessarily keep a, a sketchbook, a paper and pencil, but you keep a lot of ideas on oh, your, on your phone, on your voice oh, yeah. notes. And, voice uh, notes and then also like my actual notes too, because sometimes this doesn't happen all the time because usually the melody and the lyrics come together, uh -huh. but sometimes I'll just have ideas for lyrics and I'll just write them or I'll, I'll get a title idea and just write them in my notes. And then I'm like, okay, I'll come back to that later. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I've had one singer songwriter that I've interviewed who actually still did everything on uh, paper with paper and pencil. And even during the interview, he even said, just a second. And he turned around and you could see in the background a shelf and he had these big Tupperware containers just full of these like notebooks that he had kept uh, uh, ideas in. And, and he said a lot of that was because of, uh, where he went to uh, college, where he went to the university, he was, uh, uh, I don't remember now, one of, one of the Carolina schools. I can't remember if it was North or South now. No, it was East, East Carolina University. And his theory teacher would not let them use Finale or Sibelius. They still had to write everything by hand on staff paper. And he thought it was old school, but he always thanked his teacher for doing that. So he still kind of does things old school or rights, but he's the only one. Everyone else, of course, is kind of newer, newer technology, which is which is not a bad, yeah, bad I'm thing. Sure at all. There's only one song that I've ever written where I've like sat with like a like staff paper and like written like sat at the piano and like written written it out. And I've actually yeah. never even finished that song. But Maybe that's why. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I have to. I have to be honest with you about something. You know, I never used to like to write music at all, because it was always such a slow process for me. My brain would think faster than I could get note things down on the paper. So once I finally got Finale, and uh, started using it, I found that I could almost get the ideas down as fast as I could think. So I started writing more. I don't write any original stuff, but I, I like to write arrangements. And uh, uh, so, you know, maybe that is why you've never finished it. You should take what you've got, see, and put it into some electronic thing and finish that darn song. Maybe it'll be a big hit for you. There you go. Well, hey, speaking oh, of which, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought oh, did no, I, I interrupt you. <laughs> oh, okay. No, you're good. All right. Well, I, I, so I, I assume, or, or I shouldn't assume. But are you currently writing? And can you share a yeah. sneak a preview with uh, with my audience what they might hear in a future performance or you know on a future recording? Well, I think um, you. I think in the email you sent me, one of the links was a, a song called "Don't Tell Me." Okay, and that's one of my newer compositions. I, I wrote that this year. I definitely want to record that one on, okay. on an upcoming record for sure. Well, wonderful. I'm glad I chose well then from your selection because <laughs> I wasn't sure, but I, I like that song and I thought, by golly, I'm going to put that in and let people hear it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, because your last recording was with Lincoln Center Orchestra in 2020. 
So you yeah. are, are you uh, definitely planning a, a new album? Do you have a new one in the works or, or one that you're, you're planning in the future? Can you share anything with us? Well, I don't have anything specific set in, in stone. Like I don't have like, okay, I'm recording on this date, but I do gotcha. have a lot of new uh, material that I know that I want to record. Okay. It's just a matter of figuring out the logistics of everything. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm hoping to record it this year, um, at least by the end of the year. Um, are you are you thinking with uh, with a combo or a big band? Um, for this, for the next one, I definitely want to do like small group trio. But I do Chapman. have a bunch of new arrangements that um, Stephen Feifke and Javier Nero have written for me for big band um, that I do want to record at some point. But that I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. I have to do one thing at a time. I understand. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with Stephen. I've got him lined up for an interview in September. And oh, I really great. love yeah. the stuff he does. Man, his arrangements are just killer. Oh, yeah, he's fabulous. Oh, man, what a great band he's, he's put together. And uh, so I'm glad to hear that you're working with him and he's working with you. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, I think a lot of lay people don't fully understand what it takes to get a recording out because, you know, to the consumer, they just see it pop up, uh, you know, on their, uh, their feed, you know, so-and-so's released, you know, here's the drop date. And they don't understand sometimes that, that that might represent several months uh, maybe even up to a year or more of uh, reserving studio time, finding musicians, getting the bread, and getting the bread together to pay for it all because it's not cheap. You know, nope. you gotta you gotta pay for the studio time. You gotta pay the musicians. You've got uh, you know plus making sure you've got your arrangements all set and uh, and going in. It's not something you just. It's not like making sausage. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> more complex than that. So I, I sympathize, uh, but I am looking forward. I all, wish you all the best in terms of getting that, uh, getting that going. Um, you. On your website, it's, uh, you've got a good number of dates uh, that you're doing in uh, New York this summer, and also that you're going to be traveling to Ireland. What can you yeah. tell us about this little trip to Ireland you're going to take? Um, so that's for the Sligo Jazz Festival. Um, and it's also, so I'm going to be performing, but I'm also going to be teaching, like working with the students there um, and doing some master classes. And I think I'll be there for a week. So it's going to be really fun. I've never been to Ireland before. Um, so I'm definitely excited to, you know, meet new people and, and, you know, see what it's like over there. <laughs> well, I will tell you, it's a beautiful country. I was there, it's been a long time ago, but I, uh, when I was a high school band director, many, many moons ago, we took the band to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in oh, wow. Dublin and uh, spent a week in Ireland. And it is just a beautiful country and the people are beautiful. And uh, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to your experience. I think you'll have a wonderful time. That's just awesome. Um, if somehow magically I was able to uh, uh, transport to New York in the next few weeks, where are some places I might hear you? Um, so I'm going to be playing at a bunch 
at Birdland Jazz Club. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, I'll be playing there. And then I have a couple dates at Dizzy's coming up too. Um, that would be, uh, I think that's in September, actually. Maybe that's a little bit further out. Yeah, that's um, all right. But I'm with the Birdland Big Band at the end of July, July 29th. And then every Tuesday in August, I'll be at Birdland um, Duo with Mickey Yamanaka. She's a oh, really great pianist. I know Mickey. Yes. Oh, awesome. Yeah, Mickey. <laughs> yes, actually, so yeah, I, I inter oh, I love Mickey. I interviewed her several weeks ago, and her interview was the one that went live this week on my podcast. Yay. And I, yeah, and she's I, Oh, she's awesome. She is awesome. And um, I also uh, interviewed Jimmy. So, uh, and, oh, awesome. and, and I try to tune into their, uh, their live stream. They do every week. I don't catch it uh, super, super often, but yeah, you're going to do a gig with Mickey. That'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. I, it's actually our first time, like having a proper gig together. Cause huh? I, I always see her at smalls. We always hang at smalls or, or, you know, late night and, and whatever but we've never actually like played a, a gig together so it's gonna be i'm really excited oh, um yeah. she's so great um yeah <laughs> yeah well she's so nice and funny and oh, she yeah. just cracks me up you know it's really super um and small sounds like a fun club i've never been to smalls oh right i'm also going to be at mesro in all oh, too. Good. Um, i remember the date uh, i'm also going to be at the jazz forum at some point um i'm sorry i'm trying to think it's new york i i think that's all in august as well okay yeah well, sorry. So, oh that's cool that's cool i mean i always i always like to you know kind of help give you a plug in case any of my listeners are either in new york or planning to go to new york and uh my wife i keep telling my wife that uh one of these days we're going to spend an autumn in new york uh and uh <laughs> sorry had to couldn't resist um you know and do things that that about new york that we love like we we you know i love jazz and jazz clubs and she's has gotten me to love uh the met metropolitan opera and and you know things like that so uh, I, I warn you ahead of time that if I'm coming to New York, you may get an email saying, I'm coming, where can I come hear you sing, you know, come, come Aww. here, you, you do your thing, because uh, I always like to try to want to hook, uh, connect with uh, people I've had on my show. So that's really great. Well, thank you for for bringing us up. Uh, and to my listeners, you know, if you're in New York City, or planning to go, go, uh, you know, check out, uh, and uh, Ashley and and you'll love her stuff. I've got a kind of a question that's sort of pedantic, but I've got to know the answer. Uh, you perform both with combos and big bands. Uh -huh. uh, are there any insights you can share about different and I say quote unquote muscles that you have to flex that in those different kinds of situations? How would you compare performing in the two different musical environments, big band versus small group? Well, I think the small group setting is definitely more intimate. Um, and, you know, speaking of like the actual stage setup, a lot of times when I'm with a big band, yeah, I'll have a monitor, but there's so many more instruments that sometimes I can't really hear myself on stage. 
So I rely more on actual like muscle memory of how everything feels when I'm singing as opposed to like relying on a monitor. And because um, some, some singers have a tendency to, to put like over push when right. they can't hear themselves. But I try to rely on like that muscle memory to know where everything sits normally so that I don't overexert myself on stage if I can't hear myself with the monitor. Um, Cause you know, with the, tr with the, tr if I'm playing with the trio, um, it's not as intense as playing with like so many horns, having all these trumpets behind you. Um, so I, I feel like that's the biggest difference for me. Um, just not, not really being able to hear myself. Sure. With the big band. <laughs> um, yeah. But I don't know. I think both are fun. The other thing too, is that since the big band arrangements are so involved, I have to be more focused on what's happening because I am going along with an arrangement. Um, mm -hmm. In a trio setting, I could be like, oh, hey, let's play Autumn in New York in this key. And then it's like in that moment, whatever happens, if, if there's not an arrangement. Um, but with the big band, everything is arranged. So I have to remember, okay, I come in after the, the shout chorus or I come in after the key change or try to have it all memorized. I think um, I'm just a lot more focused on what's going on um, form-wise, I think, as opposed to when I'm with like a, with a small that makes That makes perfect sense. Cause uh, you know, really you, you have less flexibility when you've got more horns because mm -hmm. you do have to have an arrangement to avoid Everything chaos. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with uh, if you're just being backed by a trio or maybe even a quartet, there's, I mean, those people can go, you, you could go with the flow a little more. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, something that I just happened to think yeah. about, and, and, and this is not a question I submitted to you earlier. So if you don't want to answer it, you, you, you don't have to, but I am concerned about, do you have any particular vocal health regimen that might be helpful to my, any vocalists out there in my audience? Um, not really. I mean, when I'm on the road, I've found that, you know, cause we have to stay healthy when we're, cause our voice is our instrument. If we get sick, then it's like, what are you going to do? Um, I found that having some lemon and honey, if I feel a little bit of something coming on, I'll just get like a whole lemon and just like um, eat it like I would eat like an orange, even though mm. it tastes terrible. It kills whatever bacteria is in like starting to make me get sick. And then in combination with like manuka honey, I, I feel like it, it kills whatever is going on and then I'm able to fight whatever sickness. When I was in Arizona, I started getting a bit sick. Um, I think that was a month ago now. Um, and I, I asked the bartender, I was like, do you have lemons? <laughs> and I was just like eating the lemons and then I was able to go on stage and I was fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's definitely a big, a big one for me that I've discovered while like being on the road. But in terms of like warm ups or anything like that, I don't really I don't really, I don't, I don't really have anything that I do. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I was just kind of curious. I, you know, I know, uh, of course, my wife is very concerned about her vocal health. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and of course, common things be, you know, get plenty of rest and, and, you know, eat good, eat well, I should say, and, and take care of your overall health, because your voice is part of your body. And your, if your body's not healthy, your voice won't be. Uh, and, and that sort of thing. I was just, uh, you know, I was just uh, always kind of curious to add to uh, uh, kind of the uh, collection of, of tips that, that, uh, that's okay. It happens. Mine has, luckily mine hasn't, but sometimes it does. Uh, I'm just curious as to, well, you know, kinds of things. My laptop. So my phone is silenced, but my laptop made, made the, the noise. Well, isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah. well, well, that's Sorry. okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not that persnickety. I won't, I'm not even going to worry about uh, editing it out because one of the things that I like my listeners to know is we are human. <laughs> so things happen. Well, Ashley, uh, is there anything else that you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Um, I can't really think of anything. I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I just was what, you know, cause I tell you what, I try to be thorough and I try to do, you know, as much as I can to lead you to talk about you know promoting things that you're doing but i also know that uh i'm not perfect and i can and sometimes miss something and so i always add that question because if there's something the artist wants to talk about or add that i haven't asked i certainly want to allow for that but ashley thank you uh so much for taking time thank to talk you. with me today uh you know and i again i want to wish you all the best with what i'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future Thank you so much. And thank you for having me and for, you know, setting this all up. It's been really nice talking to you. <laughs> well, thank you. And you have a great rest of the day. My discovery composer of the week is Georgi Kurtog. Kurtog was born in Romania to Hungarian parents in 1926. His mother began teaching him the piano when he was five. From 1940, he studied the piano with Magda Cardos and composition with Max Isakovitz in Timisoara. He moved to Budapest in 1946, acquiring Hungarian citizenship in 1948. There, he continued to study the piano with Paul Cardosa, chamber music with Leo Wiener, and composition with Sandor Veres. 1946 to 1948, briefly with Paul Giardani and then with Ferenc Farkas, 1948 to 1955, at the Franz Liszt Academy of Music. He graduated in piano and chamber music in 1951 and in composition in 1955. He was awarded the Urkel Prize by the Hungarian state in 1954 and 1956, and later in 1969. In 1947, he married the pianist Marta Kinsker, born in 1928, and their son, Georgi, was born in 1954. During this early period, Kurtog was more active as a pianist than as a composer. 
his performances of Bartok being particularly praised. His most significant early composition, the Viola Concerto, which was his diploma piece, was considerably influenced by Bartok's Violin Concerto No. 2. Kurtog has been profoundly moved by Menuhin's Budapest performance in 1946. Kurtog's works of this period demonstrate a loyalty to Bartok's rhythmic structures and folk song influenced sonorities above all else. Access to music from the West was limited at that time. All Bartok's works were to be heard in concert, apart from 1949 to 1953, when certain of his middle period compositions were banned by the Communist Party. The few pieces Kurtag wrote to fulfill commissions for socialist realist works were later withdrawn. Kurtag spent a year, 1957 to 1958, studying in Paris, attending the classes of Messiaen, Mio, and Max Deutsch. It is the parallel consultations with the art psychologist Marianne Stein, however, that he cites as being of most importance. When Kurtok presented her the sole work he completed in Paris, an extensive piano piece, Stein's advice was that his compositional voice would be most effectively developed if he set himself simple musical tasks, such as exploring the various ways of connecting two notes. Such clearly defined limits emerge as structural mechanisms throughout Opus 1 through Opus 9, a coherent group of short works written almost exclusively for small forces. A particularly clear example of the taut structures is found in the eight piano pieces Opus 3, first performed in Darmstadt in 1960 by Andor Lozinski. Paris provided an opportunity for Kurtok to encounter new scores. His study and copying out of all the principal works of Webern made a lasting impression. His string quartet, Opus 1, shares features of Webern's Opus 5 and 9. All six movements typify his duly discovered concentration of expression. The principle of completing the 12-note space is used frequently, and the work opens with an allusion to Webern. The frequent use of ostinato may also be cited as coming from Webern or even Stravinsky, but the technique is equally Bartokian. The debt to Bartok, in particular, to his middle period quartets. When this quartet was first performed in Budapest in 1961, it caused a sensation as the first Hungarian work to demonstrate assimilation of modern Western musical currents. The sayings of Peter Bordemitsa, Opus 7, a 40-minute song cycle for soprano and piano, which was Kurtok's first vocal work since before 1956, crowned this first mature compositional phase and also broke away from the period's relentlessly cogent concision. The decision to remain in Hungary after the revolution in 1956 was of inestimable significance to Kurtag's subsequent professional activities and the wider dissemination of his works. From 1958 to 1963, he worked as a repetiteur 
at the Bartok Music School, a secondary school specializing in music. In 1967, he was made a professor of piano at the Liszt Academy, changing to professor of chamber music about two years later. Between 1960 and 1968, he also worked as a repetiteur of soloists with the Hungarian State Concert Agency, the National Philharmonia. His reputation as an instrumental and vocal coach preceded his success as a composer at home and abroad. When the piano teacher, Marian Tjolka, invited Kurtog to contribute some pieces to an album of works for children in 1973, he responded with pre-games, the task of writing simple pieces for a specific type of player shifted him out of his impasse. Another stimulus was the experimental new music studio formed in Budapest in 1970. In workshops and concerts, the group presented Hungarian premieres of works by such composers as Stockhausen, Cage, Wolf, Feldman, Kagel, and Reich, and composed new works to explore innovatory, improvisatory interactions between playing and composing. This period was one of increased collaboration with particular performers, including the pianist Zoltan Kosis, uh, the violinist Andras Keller, and the soprano Adrienne Zengeri. Kurtog composes painstakingly and haltingly. In 1985, when he was 59, his output had reached only Opus 23, and several works remained unfinished or had been withdrawn for revision. He had made an almost unparalleled contribution to performance, however, both in and outside Hungary. He never taught composition, but his coaching of instrumentalists at the International Musicians Seminar in Prussia Cove, Cornwall, and the International Bartok Seminar in Hungary brought him widespread fame. Zoltan Kosis, Andras Schiff, and the first Tux String Quartet are among his pupils. Despite having decided to give up performing when he lived in Paris, he was drawn back to it through devising a concert program of his own transcriptions for two and four hands for himself and his wife. This new concert activity, combined with his teaching, generated increasing international interest from 1985 onwards. At this time, he also began to compose more steadily. Seven international awards punctuated his continuously growing recognition and activity outside Hungary, culminating in the Ernst von Siemens Music Prize in 1998. Since 1993, he has lived in Berlin in residence with the Berlin Philharmonic, 1993-1995, and as a member of the Académie der Kost, 1998-1999. Vienna, as composer in residence at the Vienna Konzerthaus, 1995-1996, Amsterdam, as honorary professor at the Royal Conservatory of the Hague, 1996-1997, and Paris, working in collaboration with the Ensemble Intercomporane and at the Conservatoire, 1999 to the present. The All Music Guide lists recordings of 82 of Kurtog's chamber works, 
seven of his works for chorus, four of his concerti, over 100 of his works for keyboard, one piece for orchestra, 23 recordings of his compositions for voice and accompaniment, and 10 miscellaneous works. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video of a performance of Kurtok's 12 Microludes for String Quartet, Opus 13, performed by the Keller Quartet. Well, that wraps episode number 99. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing Philadelphia-based jazz trombonist and vocalist Haley Brunell. Other upcoming interviews include Nashville-based singer-songwriter Jess Jokoy, Chicago-based free jazz saxophonist and composer Ken Vandermark, and Nashville-based pop country artist Erin Gibney. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.